0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA.
1: Good afternoon. It's good to have you with me, listening online on the ABC Listen app or even back on the podcast. A big hello to you. It's the 3rd of January. I wonder if you remember what you were doing this time last year. Maybe you were on holiday? I was working in Darwin collecting crocodile eggs with the country hour up there. Was harvest still going for you maybe? For people in the Fitzroy Valley, it was a very different picture because it was a year ago this week that the Fitzroy Valley floods hit and they became the worst floods in WA history.
2: From our veranda, like mid-morning, the morning that the, the, the levels started to really rise, I was just on the veranda with my son and I could see cattle and I could hear them being washed, like, not far from my house. And that's, you know, that's, that's devastating to, like, to be able to see them and, like, we literally couldn't do anything.
1: It's just so heart-wrenching to hear. You're going to take a moment to reflect on that today and look at where things are at one year on from the Fitzroy flood event. Also today, talking about mental health support for volunteer firefighters. I wonder whether you're a volunteer, if you are, Do you feel adequately supported? You can get in touch on zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Do you think things are working as they are or would you like to see changes to how volunteers, particularly first responders, are looked after? What would you like to see? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the SMS. Also, on a lighter note, you'll celebrate a gun shearer who's broken a pretty major record.
3: Pretty stoked with the outcome of it all. Uh, trained pretty hard for, for this attempt. And um, I'm yeah stoked that I got to shear over 700 lambs.
1: You'll meet her before one o'clock. It's uh the text number again to get in touch is zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. You are listening to the country hour Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon and it's seven minutes past twelve. First up today, mining billionaires Andrew and Nicola Forrest have increased their stake in Australia's largest cattle company, AACO. The couple's investment company, Tatarang, has been slowly buying into AACO over the last few years and yesterday its shareholding reached just over 19% according to an ASX announcement. Tim Faulkner is from agricultural investment firm Kidder Williams. He says Tatarang is nearing the takeover threshold of 20%.
4: They've been building their stake gradually over time and more recently in the last couple of days, they've uh, increased from uh, approximately 18.5% to 19.5%. So they're very close to the 19.9% maximum threshold threshold. in Australia where they're after that. If they are going to continue buying shares, they'll have to either creep, which is a slow acquisition of um, up to 3% every six months or or make a takeover offer.
5: Yeah, so how significant is it that Tatarang is now right on that threshold?
4: Well, I think it is significant, but I don't want to overplay it because um, he has been building his stake over time. And, and the recent acquisition is only of another 1%, so it's most likely that um, they were approached, those, that, that line was on the market and, and they decided to, to take it just to continue to build their um, stake in the company, which um, they've made very clear that they see value in as, as part of their strategy of um, building a portfolio of, of large-scale Australian agricultural assets.
5: Yeah, and do you have any more insight into you know, what exactly Tatarang and the Forest see in a company like AACO?
4: Well, obviously, it's one of Australia's um, largest agricultural assets. Um, so, for somebody like um, Tuyi who has um, a, a strategy of, of building a portfolio in Australian agriculture, um, it's an obvious one to, for him to invest in. Um, he's got funds that he he's deploying in the sector, and, and this allows him to to do that. Um, more broadly, I think I don't know what their it's particularly what their strategy is, but. Um, Oftentimes um, ASX listed agricultural assets um, like AA code, which are an aggregation of a a number of um, high quality properties, attract interest from people like Twiggy, who think, well, it's trading at a discount to its net tangible asset Um, backing. um, That's because it's an aggregation of of properties and it's managed by a large corporate, which has a lot of um, corporate overheads attaching to that. Um, And over time, um, as, the, as the nature of the business progresses and its shareholders and Joe Lewis is there through Tavistock with over 51%, he, he may think that um, there is an opportunity that, um, you know, in the medium to long term future that, um, that, that Joe um, may move on and, and um, you, you may be able to break um, AA co up and, and realise that discount um, that, that currently applies as a listed as company.
5: AOK hasn't paid a dividend to its shareholders for about fifteen years or so. Do you think that would be something that would concern the forests?
4: No, I, I don't. I mean, um, the, the fact that Tweed is in, increasing his um, his stake in the company um, tells me that it tells me that it's not. Um, I, I think he, he knows um, agricultural assets very well. Um, these are assets that appreciate over time. It's uh, an investment in land rather than an investment in the, the operating business that's going to pay a dividend. He has a very long time horizon and, and he's got the funds to, to deploy in these types of businesses.
5: At what point, if the investment did increase, would Tatarang be able to put a director on the board?
4: Well, that, that's a, a matter for, for Tatarang and AACO. Um, he, he's at a level now where um, there are many companies um, that uh, that would see that it's appropriate for the, for them to have a, a director on the board, um, but that's that's really a matter between the, the shareholder and and the rest
6: of the board.
5: Tatarang of course, recently bought the iconic Australian hat brand, a Kubra. Do you think this investment is in line with that uh, their desire to own iconic iconic Australian brands? Uh,
4: certainly, Dan. I mean. This is one of the most iconic um, Australian companies. It's been around for a very long time. And it's an aggregation of a number of iconic Australian stations. Um, so you know, it's absolutely consistent with their broader strategy. It's uh, certainly, as I said, it's interesting. Um, you've got Joe Lewis there with a the significant shareholding and he's obviously uh, um, a large personality on the, the broader um, international Scale and and Tuggy is uh, is, is investing in a number of companies like this now, so um, where it goes, uh, we don't know at the moment, but it would certainly be interesting to follow.
1: Tim Faulkner is a director with Kidder Williams, He was speaking with Dan Fitzgerald. And the Country Hour has contacted Tatarang for comment, haven't received a response yet. But when asked about investing in AACo last year, Tatarang's chief investment officer said it was committed to investing in Australian businesses and brands that showcase the best of our country to the world and support local jobs. Our investment in AACo is part of this commitment. This is a long-term investment for Tatarang. It's 13 past 12. On the topic of Andrew Forrest, I brought you the story yesterday that Fortescue Metals Group had suffered a derailment on its train line in the Pilbara. I understand that train line is still out at this point, but a spokesperson said it was on track to resume today. Now, I've been told locally it's unlikely to be reinstated until later tonight, but the spokesperson declined to comment on exactly when it would be up and running. The company has said that multiple ore cars derailed from the track on Saturday and no one was injured, and the company said there was no risk to the community. <clears throat> I spoke with people within the industry who said it was about 50 wagons which had come off the track about 150 kilometres or so south of Port Hedland and possibly up to 300 metres of track has been lost. Again, I asked whether exports were likely to have been impacted. Fortescue spokesperson refused to comment on that. Um, The only statement they said they'll make was that December exports and July to December 2023, that uh, first half of the financial year, those exports had not been affected. Given the company has stockpiles, that's not surprising. But with the train line out for four days at this stage and those stockpiles dwindling, we'll have to wait and see whether January exports will be hit. Uh, Fortescue has five berths at the port in Port Hedland. Currently, there's one ship in, uh, at a berth. There are two scheduled to come in tonight, I believe, but it does look to be a quiet day for exports at FMG. Again, FMG's media team has refused to confirm or deny any impact.
0: The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA.
1: Volunteer firefighters in Western Australia are calling for better mental health support. Currently in the state, career firefighters, ambulance officers and police are covered under PTSD presumption. It simplifies the process for claiming workers' compensation for post-traumatic stress disorder. But volunteer firefighters aren't covered by that. And last year, the WA government rejected a bill which would have seen volunteers receive that same level of support given to paid first responders. The ABC has spoken to a volunteer who we're calling Tom. It's not his real name. It's been kept um, private uh, for privacy reasons. But he's been an emergency services volunteer in the southwest for 34 years and says it's begun to take a toll.
7: The WA. Um, so we're on call 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, do a range of stuff from bushfires, house fires, car accidents, cat rescues in trees, all sorts of stuff. Um, just really when someone needs a hand, um, we get called to help them out. A lot of times it interrupts you know your sleep or your work or even important family stuff. A lot of our volunteers just give up what they're doing to help other people out.
8: Do you think there's some misconceptions about volunteer firefighting compared to perhaps paid firefighting
7: yeah I think a lot of people don't understand what volunteers actually do we actually do exactly the same um, as career people we just we don't get paid for it we don't get the study time and the extra stuff they do we just basically do the training and the the firefighting stuff and the rescue Um, a lot of people don't realize exactly what extent we do do
8: and so it's not just necessarily dealing with fires there's other certain things that you'll be responding to as well is that correct
7: yes um that's correct we attend a lot of um car accidents um fatalities um Yeah, you know, suicides, all sorts of stuff, Um, hazardous spills, um, missing people, trapped people, Um, yeah, it's a big variety of stuff. we're.
8: Are there any cases that you've responded to that have really stayed with you mentally?
7: Um, There's probably all the cases, like fatalities we attend, um, that sort of sticks with us, I know it sticks a lot with me. a lot of people I've known locally and um, you know or I know of the family that it's that's affected yeah yeah.
8: And what were the days after or the weeks or the months after like when you're dealing with those cases where you know the person?
7: Um, So usually it's the first few days or a little bit you feel a bit flat but then after you sort of start to get better but when you see people, or or you go past um, where it happened, you sort of it brings back memories every now and then. Because our volunteers work and live in our communities, the traumatic incidents or critical incidents we attend, um, there's a fairly big chance that they know someone, or they've worked with the person involved, or you know they'll they'll go past that the same place, or something will trigger it.
8: And what can that do to the mind?
7: Um, I think it actually it affects the way you feel about things later on. Um, and then some of our volunteers have attended a great number of events so it just sort of builds up and yeah it has it does have a lasting effect on you um, as much as we don't like to. We've got the you know counseling and we've got all that available but it's still you know there's still a little bit stays with you to still keep that memory.
8: I'm aware that volunteers can get PTSD coverage, but they have to go through quite a few steps to prove that and receive a medical diagnosis rather than just automatically receiving that coverage currently. Um, What do you think the ramifications of that process could be to volunteers?
7: I think um, having to step through all those hoops, volunteers would be reluctant. To sort of, you know, you're already suffering, you're already feeling bad. The last thing you want to do is being pushed from pillar to post and jump through hoops to try and prove that, you know, it was my career, my volunteer um, stuff that caused my mental um, injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
8: And how are you feeling? on the basis that this bill for volunteer firefighters in WA to have presumptive PTSD coverage was rejected?
7: Uh, it's, it's disappointing, with especially with the amount of work our volunteers do for free. Um, you know, they don't get paid. They do it out of the goodness of their heart. And, you know, we're offering it to career staff and, you know, you, Even your ambulance call centre people are getting it, whereas, you know, we're working and and living in our communities and serving our communities, yet we've been asked to prove where it's come from.
8: What would this presumptive PTSD coverage mean? How would it benefit volunteer firefighters in WA?
7: I think it would just make them feel comfortable that they're they're respected and they're looked after and, and that if they are feeling like they're suffering then they can go and get help without you know having to see a heap of people and and you know it's just a lot more easier and a lot more comforting you know if you're suffering from a post-traumatic injury the last thing you want to do is you know go and see a doctor then go see anything and then you know try and see an insurance doctor to prove that that's where you got it from and I think it's just unfair that we have to prove it where 90 percent of the people work in a job where the chances of getting ptsi is is limited
8: you've spoken briefly about um things that have stayed with you do you personally have any triggers as well that you suffer with
7: there's a lot of things that sort of i remember um i can just about remember everyone's name of you know of locals sort of thing um, there was a, a family that I helped after the incident deal with some stuff and seeing them sort of get you down every now and then. And then even just seeing stuff on, you know, people suffering in a like car accident, you sort of you get that feeling of how they're feeling. You sort of understand it. So, yeah.
8: How do you personally get back up and go out and serve your community again?
7: I like most people. I think we just sort of deal with it the best we can and, and get up and and do it again. You know, we've had times where we've had critical incident jobs three in a week. So you just you get up and just deal with it the best you can and talk to your mates and, and sort of get on with it as, as well as you can and hope it doesn't affect you too much.
1: That is a Southwest volunteer firefighter whose name is being withheld for privacy reasons. He was speaking with Piper Duffy about his call to extend mental health support to volunteer firefighters, particularly in regional WA. Currently, career firefighters, ambulance officers and police are covered by presumptive PTSD, which more or less means that if they choose to claim workers' compensation for PTSD, it's presumed it's come from their work, uh, whereas volunteer firefighters have to jump through a few extra hoops which they can say can be quite challenging particularly when you're in a vulnerable situation as you've just heard there and last year the WA government rejected a bill which would have seen volunteers come under that same rule and that was rejected. So if you'd like to read more of this story you can do that online just search ABC Volunteer PTSD it should come up for you and of course if If you do need some support, support, please do call Lifeline on 13 11 14.
0: The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA.
1: It's 24 past 12, heading off to the Weather Bureau very shortly. First, though, plenty of cattle stations, particularly in the north, are on the hunt for new staff this year. It can be tricky to find the right workers, though. Stock worker Marley Blake first moved to a station in the Northern Territory for a gap year. She was working at a station on the Queensland-NT border. That gap year is still going three years later. And now, since getting a taste of station life, Marley Blake has realized she actually wants to pursue a career in the beef industry.
9: When I was doing year 12, that was in 2020 in Victoria. Yeah, it was COVID, so it was locked down pretty much the whole year. The whole time I was doing my yeah, year 12 course, I was just at home, like we'd have to zoom in every morning before we started school and talked to everybody on the Zoom and then that was, that was our whole year. We didn't really know anything different. Even my year 12 exams, like three-hour English exam and we all had masks on and it was very restricted. So then the following year I was due to go to uni. I'd gotten into a double degree of criminology and psychology and yeah, I got home from work. I was just doing casual work at a pub at that stage. before I was meant to go to uni and I just thought I needed to get out and explore and do something different, which I was so glad that I did because as it happened, everybody stayed in lockdown for that next year. So if I had stayed at home, I just would have been doing uni online at home. So then I came up here. After I got home from work that day, I got onto Facebook and just applied for a few different jobs. And then two weeks later, I was on a plane to Queensland to start a new job.
10: What were your first thoughts when you arrived at the station?
9: Well, I actually have like a really vivid memory of getting to Mount Isa and just being like, oh my gosh, it is so hot. Because I've lived in Victoria my whole life and I have travelled up here before, but yeah, I just couldn't believe how hot and humid I thought it was.
10: (laughs) Then how did your station work develop to you being there for three years?
9: So... I've actually changed roles within um, the station here. So the first year that I came, I was working in the shop that we have here at Tobermory. So it's just like a small shop for people passing through um, fuel and food and coffees and things like that. So that was my job in 2021, which I really enjoyed. I love talking to all the tourists that came through. Yeah, it was a really fun year. And then... When it started to get towards the end of the year, I um, really wanted to have a crack with the crew and, yeah, go out and experience everything else that was happening on the station.
10: And you obviously loved it. What was What's the best thing about your life and work now?
9: Um, well, sometimes I... Like, it's such a lifestyle thing, I guess, and um, sometimes I just... Don't even think it's a job, really. Like, obviously, there is times when, you know, it's tough and everything like that. But, yeah, it's just such a, I guess, yeah, lifestyle change that I've really just enjoyed.
10: And it's a lot different from criminology and psychology. Wow! Do you ever see yourself going back to to those sorts of career paths?
9: Um, No, I definitely don't. They're definitely still um, topics that interest me, but I think that I was just going to uni after school because it was what everybody else was doing and, you know, it's what you're meant to do. So I think that, yeah, I just picked a couple of topics that I was interested in and then, yeah, after working for a couple of years, I've kind of completely done a 360 on how I view, I guess, the whole uni process.
10: Yeah. And so now you're thinking maybe to have a career in the beef industry, maybe?
9: Yeah, I definitely think that that is where I'm leaning towards, yeah.
10: We hear a lot, or I hear a lot in this job, um, a lot of people sort of say kids don't know that jobs in agriculture exist or they don't know what those jobs look like, so how can they aspire to work in that industry if they don't know what it looks like? Is that pretty online with your experience, do you think?
9: Yeah, definitely. And I also think that it's something where if you haven't grown up on a property or you haven't grown up around the industry it can be harder to get your foot in the door don't get me wrong there's if you're willing to you know crack out and have a have a go there's countless properties that take on green people but yeah i think it helps if you know somebody who knows someone and yeah if you've never been around it and you're from A city, yeah, it's definitely harder to get your foot in the door, I would say.
10: Yeah, do you have any ideas of what could help make that process smoother then to help people see what the opportunities are in remote areas? Should there be, like, I don't know, more school tours to those sorts of places or should there be exchange programs or is there any ideas that you have that could help solve that problem?
9: Well, I think it's more the fact that it's just an unknown kind of thing for people Especially in Victoria, I would say, it's just unknown. As I was saying earlier, my family from home probably didn't really know exactly what was going on up here. So it's not something that's spoken about or we're aware of in a way.
10: Yeah, so more awareness would help people know.
9: Yeah, definitely.
1: That's Marley Blake. She's a station worker from Tobermory Station on the NT Queensland border. Chatting with Victoria Ellis about her gap year, which has been extended to three. And I know there are plenty of people looking for station workers now, so if you are keen to have a bit of a gap here, I promise the weather isn't too bad in the Pilbara uh, or the Kimberley or the Gascoigne, make sure you check out some of those those websites, those um, station hand uh, recruitment, that kind of thing. There's plenty of work around if you're up for it. 29 to 1 on the Country Hour. Joey Rawson is the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology today. Joey, what can we expect in the south of the state over the next few days?
11: Yeah, so across the, south, the west land division, we've got uh, these southeasterly winds pushing a fair bit of cloud across the southern districts and and. The rain is falling uh, through more of the southeastern parts of the southwest land division, so um, in the eastern part of the southeast coastal district. And even though it's not in the southwest land division, uh, the Eucla is getting some showers as the easterly winds push up against the south coast. But as you move further towards Mug River, there is still cloud and there's still um, showers around, but, um, the amount out of those showers is, is far less. So, um, I think air on the earth peninsula had 20 millimeters over the last 24 hours, and the rainfall amounts further towards the southwest are more around that sort of half to one millimeter. Um, there's also some cloud and showers pushing all the way up into the goldfield. So, Kalgoorlie is getting a couple of showers at the moment. And so that uh, kind of dies out once you get sort of halfway through the goldfields. Moving on to uh, the next few days, um, it's a similar story for tomorrow. We're just going to get some light drizzly stuff um, through most of the sort of southeast parts of the southwest land division. Um, The most rain will be through the far eastern parts, which uh, maybe around sort of five millimetres uh, through parts east of Esperance. But as you move back uh, towards um, Albany, the rainfall is going to be more around that sort of 0.2 of a millimetre mark. And then as you move further west to the Marg River region, we're not expecting much at all. As we move on to Friday, um, that's the exact same story. Um, yeah, just that southeast drizzly stuff. Um, through the southwest land division. Um, not going to get much through the um, sort of southwest of the state and central wheat belt, but through the southeast coastal district and also through the southern parts of the goldfields will uh, get some falls, but it's not going to be much as far as volume falling out of the sky. And then as we progress onto the weekend, um, the weather pattern doesn't change a lot. It starts changing once we get to Sunday, but for Saturday, it's a similar story. We're just going to get that, that southeasterly flow just driving some light, drizzly, drizzly stuff through um, you know, the south coast you know, from Albany uh, eastwards and then even pushing up to nearly Kalgoorlie on Saturday. But um, then once we get to Sunday, that stuff uh, eventually moves out and we start seeing... Uh, dry conditions for most of the southwest land division.
1: What about in northern parts of the southwest land division? Is is there anything really of note there or is it sort of just business as usual weather-wise for this time of
11: year? Yeah, it is uh, a little bit interesting because some of the stuff is uh, pushing up to kind of the, the eastern parts of the southwest land division. Um, but if, the further you get up, so parts of the central wheat belt and even into the eastern parts, of the Great Southern, you may be getting like 0.2 or 0.3 of a millimetre. So it, it is pushing further inland than just the South Coast like we usually get. Um, but as you get to, say, uh, Southern Cross, um, that that will drop off a lot. So anything sort of west of Southern Cross and, uh, and down to the southwest, we're not expecting much. But on that far eastern boundary, the next you know two to three days and we could get just the light light uh, bit of precipitation out of that stuff and michelle sorry
1: in the north of the state, I've been winding for the last week about how hot it's been up here, and, and I'm sure it still is in inland parts, but, gee, the wind has picked up and it is getting quite cool for us this time of year. I was pretty chilly last night, um, which, you know, still 30-odd degrees. But w- what's happening in the north of the state? It, it seems to be a bit all over the shop at the moment.
11: Yeah, so we've just got um, like a the trough uh, that's just pushed inland. So uh, what about you, Michelle? What town are you in? I'm up in Port Hedland, so it's
1: been pretty Port humid, Hedland. sort of up around 90% humidity or so. Um, but the the because of the wind, it's really cooled down after, you know, being Marble Bar was 49 on the weekend. And I know it's still warm inland, but on the coast, it's really dropped off.
11: Yeah, no, you've got a good point there. So that, that trough was kind of lingering over, you know, that Pilbara coast over Hedland and Crater and, and we weren't getting those, um, those winds off the ocean to cool things down. It was just really stagnant air. And as you mentioned, the yeah, 49 and humble bar is ridiculous and, and 30 degrees overnight. And, and um, but now it, that trough has just moved a little bit inland. So those coastal locations are certainly getting some, I wouldn't say cooler conditions, but, um, it's certainly cooler than, you know, 40s 40 to 45. So. Um, it 's good to um, hear that things actually feel like there is a bit of relief up there um, michelle so um, but yeah that that should continue it being a little bit cooler along that Pilbara and Kimberley coast, but as you move to where that trough is it 's still remaining quite hot, so uh, those forty to forty five degree temperatures hanging around and and hot conditions overnight as well, so we still do have a heat wave warning out uh, for parts of the north of the state and um, but through those uh, Pilbara coastal towns, uh, certainly a slightly a slightly cooler over the next few days.
1: And Anything else of note in northern and eastern forecast districts, you know, right over to the Gascoyne and over to the Kimberley?
11: Yeah, so the Kimberley had a really nice thunderstorm um, last night. Um, we had 76 millimetres out of that and it was moving quite slow. So um, as it just didn't go anywhere, it dropped a fair bit of rain. So... Um, That was quite an isolated um, event and we're not expecting any rivers uh, to respond to that because it's just one cell. Um, We're going to expect thunderstorms to continue through the Kimberley and and through the interior for a number of days. Um, We're expecting falls around that 20 to 40 millimetre mark out of those thunderstorms. But if things do line up like we saw in the last 24 hours, we can't rule out you know, a 70 or 80 millimeter um, thunderstorm um, if one does um, go quite stationary like the one we had last night. So uh, yeah, but that's just gonna continue and, and outside of where there's showers and thunderstorms, uh, um, the heat is going to continue. So there is still a, a heat wave warning through uh, you know, parts of the Kimberley.
12: And
1: you have mentioned, so the heat wave warning, also quite a few marine wind warnings. What else can we expect warning wise for this afternoon?
11: Yeah, so just uh, rehashing the marine uh, wind warnings. They're all the way up the west coast, basically, uh, from the Gascoigne coast down to the southwest of the state. So, yeah, quite strong winds there. Uh, But the other thing to note is we've got a fire weather warning for the Perth hills, and that stretches all the way down to the southwest. So the districts that have that fire weather warning are the Swan Inland North, the Swan Inland South, the Geograph, the Capes, the Brockman and the Blackwood fire weather districts. So that's for today, Michelle, and that's going to be on as well for tomorrow. So a couple of days with um, yeah, quite sort of hot and, and dry conditions and also the vegetation is quite dry. So that's what's triggering the warning for the next couple of days. So, yes, yeah, certainly be cautious for the next couple of days through those areas.
1: Very good. Thank you for that, Joey. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. And you mentioned the rain. Let's look at the rainfall for the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning. In the north, um, totals over five mils. There were some in the Kimberley. Bedford Downs Airstrip had 29 millimetres. Drysdale River Station, 34. Emma Gorge, 6. Gibb River, 77 mils. That was uh, got the, the brunt of that thunderstorm that Joey was talking about. Kachana had 16. Marion Downs, 15. Mount Amherst, 10. And Yombu had 16. In the Eucla, air received 20 millimetres. And in the south of the state, a few places that had a mil or two, but the only measurements over that were in the southern coastal region. Many peaks, the Deep herd station there, had seven. Ravensthorpe, four. Salmon gum, salmon gum, the research station, had five. And Wellstead had four mills as well. ABC Radio,
10: fire ban information.
1: Due to the risk of fire, a total fire ban has been issued for today. That's Wednesday the 3rd of January. It's for the following local government areas in the outer Perth metro region. Armadale, Chittering, Gosnells, Calamunda, Mundaring, Serpentine, Jarrahdale, Swan and 2J. And in the southwest region, Augusta Margaret River, Boy Up Brook, Bridgetown Greenbushes, Bunbury, Busselton, Capel, Collie, Darden Up, Donnybrook Bailing Up, Harvey, Murray and Waroona. During a total... total fire ban you must not light fires for cooking or camping including wood-fired pizza ovens you must not carry out hot work such as grinding and welding or go off-road driving using four-wheel drive or quad bike and the following local governments have also issued a harvest and vehicle movement ban That's the City of Swan and the Shire of Mingenew for the Harvest and Vehicle Movement ban. If you'd like more detailed information, including zones, any other restrictions and the lifting of harvest bans, please contact your local government. And just repeating that total fire bans and harvest bans are in place for the Outer Perth Metro and the South West and that harvest ban as well in Mingenew for today, Wednesday the 3rd of January. There is more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban, also a map of the areas affected on the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au.
0: You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA.
1: A lot can happen in a year. Do you remember what you were doing this time last year? Today marks one year on from WA's worst flood event on record, ex-tropical cyclone Ellie. It arrived in the Kimberley at the start of 2023 and saw record rain dumped along the Fitzroy River catchment. It triggered flooding in the small town of Fitzroy Crossing, surrounding stations and Aboriginal communities. The floods destroyed homes, businesses and crucial trade routes across the valley and more than 1,500 people were evacuated. One of them was Camille McClymont who, alongside her husband and their one-year-old child, was airlifted from her home at Caleta Station. In the hours before the evacuation, Camille says her ears were filled with the distressed calls of cattle as they were swept past in the swollen Fitzroy River.
2: The really worrying thing was from, from our veranda, um, like mid-morning, the morning that the, the the levels started to really rise, I was just on the veranda with my son and I could see cattle and I could hear them being washed, like, not far from my house. And that's, you know, that's, that's devastating to, like, to be able to see them and, like, we literally couldn't do anything. You just hope that they got washed up. You know, and a, a big mob did actually get washed up onto our homestead island. We had like 50 on our lawn by like mid-morning that day. Wow. Um But then, and my husband was able to go up in the chopper and, you know, he could see that a lot of our cattle had made it to higher ground. Um, yeah, but that, that that was a real worry because you see these cattle being washed past and you can't do anything for them.
12: Now, looking back a year on, what has your 12 months since looked like?
2: Um, it's been, a, it, yeah, 2023 was a really hard year for us on the station. Obviously, like you get the floods and then you have the initial cleanup, which, you know, it, it didn't take that long. But then it's, it's the ongoing costs and ongoing work. So like the fencing um, that took weeks and we had to get extra people in to help get it done. So our mustering program was pushed back, I think by five weeks, um, which is pretty significant because, you know, that's five weeks that the cows have had wieners on them for longer than they should have. Um, And, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to turn cattle off until later. Um, So that really impacts the whole year having to do that. And then, yeah, just the ongoing work, like we still don't have an airstrip, In the wet season we're very isolated because we can't get a plane in we can't get our mail in um we're literally like if we have a flood now we are entirely dependent on a chopper being able to get in because you know we can't drive out and um yeah not having an airstrip is um it's not a good thing when you live this isolated um and in the floods our airstrip got completely eroded and we haven't, yeah, we just haven't had time to fix that and to build another one. And obviously the cost to build another one is huge. You must feel
12: very vulnerable, do you, going into this year's wet season?
2: Yeah, it is, it is a worry because like, my son's two now. And so, you know, not being able to get an RFDS plane in if you need it. Yeah, that that is a big worry for a mother out in the station. Yeah, there's not much I can do about it, really. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. Have you got a figure? Have you been able to quantify the
12: the costs that you have incurred over the past twelve months?
2: Um, I don't have a total cost, but I mean like the the fencing, like we had to employ uh two extra people to help with the fencing and you know, that's you know, four to five weeks of extra work with a full crew just fencing. Then plus like um my father does all the um heavy machinery work. And a lot of his work this year has just been um, like fixing up roads, um, grading along fence lines, that sort of stuff that he, extra stuff that he wouldn't normally have to do, and then we lost we lost a tank, yeah, we lost like 100 bales of hay. So yeah, it, it definitely does all add up, and we haven't actually received any funding as yet
12: um, from the floods. Have you applied for grants?
2: We're still in the process of it but obviously they don't make it particularly easy and there's been a few that we have applied for and haven't got them because, yeah, it, it's it's hard because they have, they have grants for like um, home contents but, you know, we didn't lose home contents but we lost um, a lot of stuff in our saddle shed which went completely under and that's, you know, thousands of dollars worth of saddles and cattle care products. That sort of stuff, and you know, that's we we haven't got that back yet. What about the costs um, that you
12: can't quantify, like feed in paddocks?
2: Yeah, that's that's a hard one because that that's probably the biggest thing that we're dealing with um, now is that our our pastures um, they're still they're still holding on, they're still holding on pretty good, but um, like the riverfronted paddocks got waterlogged, and so the feed has changed. And the cattle sort of have to adjust to that and then, you know, an increase in weeds um, that were brought down on the Fitzroy River and obviously distributed with the floods. Um, so that and that's going to be a huge ongoing cost. Like that's not something that you just, you know, fix quickly. It's, it's going to be ongoing. What would
12: you have liked to see now with the power of 12 months worth of hindsight when it comes to government grants and stuff like that? What would you have liked to be done differently?
2: Uh, more help, um, because we had to go and find these grants ourselves, and uh, they're not—they're not easy to fill out. And when you're, you know, like we're flat out out here, and you know, it's just we're dealing with the stuff on the ground, and to just have a little bit extra help um, and not make it so hard, and have that information like have the information easily accessible. Yeah. I mean, we probably should have gotten onto it a lot earlier, but we didn't know what to look for. And then it's, it's really annoying because you hear about these floods, like in Cairns and, um, you know, the government is assisting pastoralists and, um, they're just so much, uh, better prepared in Queensland. And it's just a real kick in the guts to us because, our government, I, I just feel like we haven't had the support. And, I, I mean, I can only talk for, for us, but I haven't heard of many people who have gotten grants actually approved.
12: Do you feel like you guys out there have been forgotten a little bit over the past 12 months?
2: Yeah. I, I think I don't think people realise, yeah, how much it has actually cost us and that it's it's going to keep going. Like the costs are going to keep going. And like we're, we're a family-owned business, we're not a, a big corporation, so you know that that does affect us really.
1: Camille McClymont. She runs Calyeda Station and we're speaking with Alice Marshall. In a statement, a spokesperson from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development reiterated that while a submission by Calyeda is underway, it hasn't been formally submitted. It said the state and Commonwealth governments have provided financial assistance over the past year to support primary producers affected by the Fitzroy flood through the disaster recovery funding arrangements. The DRFA has also funded a dedicated pastoral recovery officer to work closely with pastoralists affected by the floods. The specialist officer provides strategic advice on accessing the recovery and assistance packages, and works alongside other state government agencies. Applications for the recovery grants are open until the 30th of June this year. So search for deeper disaster recovery funding. You should be able to find that online to find out more information. Nine to one. Sticking with the floods, long-term Fitzroy Crossing resident Jeff Davis was at his family home when the flooding began last January. He watched the water rise from his decking about 150 metres from the river's edge.
13: In the town area, there was a whole bunch of places that had never, ever been inundated before that were inundated this time, and people were stunned. They were just, they were really shocked at how quickly it had come, how high it had come, and the damage and the amount of mud and silt and stuff that had actually happened and particularly those communities like Vangadi, Dalgunya, Barawa, Janjua, those communities, Lowumban, who were on low level land that had the, the flood actually go, you know, maybe a metre or two through their houses. It was um, in those first three or four days of January, it was people were just stunned and it was sort of almost like a sense of disbelief.
8: And Jeff, from your own observations, what
12: have been the biggest changes, do you think, in Fitzroy Crossing since the flood a year ago now?
13: A number of the uh, the rivers changed quite significantly in a number of areas. There's been loss of bank, you know, 80, 90 metres of bank. Uh, and then you've got this new, huge, bright, shiny bridge that's uh, been built in record time that uh, I think, uh, had local people in awe, and just how quickly, and how many people, and how how it got done, um, and the really, I think for me, the the best thing out of something which was pretty horrible was the number of local Aboriginal people who got employed in the um, in the business of fixing the bridge. Um, you know, whether it was um, on on site in doing you know, driving tractors and loaders and trucks and water carts and those sort of things. Um, guys who I've seen floating around for a long time who might not have worked very much before who uh, were really proud of the fact that they had a an orange shirt on, a high-vis shirt, and were getting in and really having a crack. And I think there was something like 240 local people who were involved in the fixing of the bridge and the, and the ancillary that go with it. And one of the things from a Mens Shed perspective I'd like to say is that uh, there's a whole bunch of young people now who I think have seen what it's like to have a, a job and to you know, get good income and uh, have a bit of a future rather than sitting around without anything to do and having feelings a bit hopeless about things. So, fingers crossed, with the, um, with the extra housing that's going to be built and hopefully with a bit of a change of mind in the way government does business, in future, we'll have a much greater involvement of local people in in uh, the running of their community and also the maintenance of the community. And uh, hopefully, we get some businesses up and going where young people have gone. Yeah, I wouldn't mind owning a truck and you know running the running the concrete backwards and forwards or and, and having a go themselves. So, so, to me, that's most probably been the, the biggest impact.
1: That's Jeff Davis, is a resident of Fitzroy Crossing, and we're speaking with Maya Cordek, reflecting on the Fitzroy Valley floods one year on. And you can read more of this story online. Just search ABC Fitzroy Flood.
0: The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA.
1: Let's end on a positive note today. A Kiwi shearer who learnt her craft in Australia has powered her way to a new world record. It's for the most lambs shorn by a woman in a nine hour workday. 30 year old Sasha Bond shore 720 lambs to beat fellow Kiwi Megan Whitehead's record of 661 lambs, which was recorded in 2021. The extraordinary feat establishes her as a god of the industry in New Zealand.
3: I feel pretty good. I'm eh? um, pretty stoked with the outcome of it all. I uh, trained pretty hard for for this attempt and I'm yeah, stoked that I got to share over 700 lambs.
6: Did you think you would, well, for one, uh, break the record and for two, crack that uh, 700 barrier?
3: I, I'm never one to count my chickens before they the hatch but i i just trusted the process of all my um training and all the technique training that i'd done to um, better my skills as a shearer, and um it all really just depended on how everything went on the day
6: i saw some some pictures and some some videos of you in action toward the end of the day and you still looked pretty fresh
3: yeah yeah um i had a really good team behind me that uh, you know, kept me at the best I could be. So um, I'm really lucky with that. I had really good hydration and the food that I was eating was perfect for um, keeping my motor rolling. So, no, I was really lucky.
6: And 720 lambs in, in nine hours of, of shearing time, that's that's a lamb every 45 seconds, isn't it?
3: Yes, yeah, so average it averaged out to be every 45 seconds.
6: Being able to to shear at that rate and maintain it, I mean, how much of it is your shearing technique and how much of it is fitness?
3: It's a lot of things really that that fall into a a successful day like like we had on Tuesday. It's not only the shearing technique and the the gym training as well. It's also a lot to do with your gear and your mental preparation. Your mental state is probably about 40% of how your day goes um, if you're not in the right frame of mind and you can't stay focused, you can't share and your body gets sore and just everything starts falling apart.
6: How long have you been shearing for?
3: Uh, I've been sharing for ten years now. I started sharing uh in Australia. I learned how to share on merinos and I've only sort of been sharing this this breed of sheep, the strong wool breed, for about four years.
6: And what was that like, learning learning the craft of shearing in Australia?
3: Um, it was amazing. I really loved it. I loved learning to shear merinos. They're probably my favourite breed of sheep to shear. Uh, they're a lot harder. You've got to use a lot more of your mind, and they sort of keep you thinking all the time. You can sort of drift off when you're shearing a, a crossbred because it's it's the same sort of shearing. You've just got to keep on top of them so they don't kick away from you, but, um, yeah, merinos are a lot, my, my cup of tea of shearing, I think.
6: And, Sasha, uh, you're only uh, 30 years old, I think, so does that mean you've still got time to, to get even better?
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, so they say that you sort of peak around for a male. They haven't really done much research on females with this in this industry, but with a male, their peak time is sort of 30 to 35 I'm not sure if that's the same for a female, but I feel pretty good at the moment. This is probably the fittest I've ever been, and, and my mindset's pretty pretty dead on too. So I feel like, yeah, this is the time that I should be doing them. Don't get me wrong, though, there are a lot younger women out there, like the likes of Megan Whitehead and Hannah McCall, who just uh, broke a couple of records a few days before mine over here in New Zealand. And they're quite young themselves, and they 've got their heads switched on, and they're amazing athletes.
6: I wanted to ask about Megan Whitehead because, as you said, just just a few days prior to your record, I think she broke your your eight hour lamb record, so you guys must sure be, <laughs> you guys must be yeah pretty pretty strong rivals
3: yeah uh, we have a good relationship, a really good relationship, but we do understand the Competitiveness to this to our industry and and what we're it's trying to achieve um, for women sharing as well. But don't get me wrong, we're the best of friends. Um, we understand what each other goes through to get to to where we are, and um, we all we all bounce off each other in that way.
1: That is gun shearer Sasha Bond. She was speaking with Angus Varley after beating that record shearing 720 lambs in New Zealand just late last year. Uh, She's a Kiwi shearer who learnt her craft in Australia and has powered her way to that new world record for the most lambs shorn by a woman in a nine-hour workday. One every 45 seconds, I think the number was. Phenomenal stuff. That is it for me for the Country Hour today. I'll be back with you from 12 o'clock tomorrow. Of course, you can always listen back on the podcast on the ABC Listen app and on the website. I'll catch you tomorrow. It's one o'clock.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.